Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. For our Bible study tonight, if you have your Bible handy, I would ask you to please open it to Matthew chapter 16 for our text and for our Bible study. We're going to be studying this passage uh, that begins in verse 13, and it goes down all the way through uh, verse 27. And if you would just pause with me for one more moment, and we'll just pray and ask the Lord to uh, use this time in, in, in a magnificent way as only he can. So, Father, we, we do just settle our hearts before you right now. And, uh, and Lord, we're excited because we get to be the body of Christ in a, a time that is like none other before. And so we ask you, Lord, that as you've put this scripture before us tonight, you've gathered us in the way that you have, that you would speak. Our hearts are open. Lord, would you cause us to hear what you would have us to hear tonight? And if there's any tonight that are overwhelmed with any kind of anxiety or fear, their perspective just isn't maybe perfectly right, I pray that tonight by your spirit you would uh, touch the little places in the heart, Lord, and make adjustments that are needed for each person, that we might have the joy of the Lord and strength in this time. And so we put this before you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this portion of scripture, though it be somewhat in the middle of Matthew's gospel, it is relatively still early on in the ministry of Jesus. And what had begun as a small thing with Jesus just gathering a few disciples to himself has become really a a, a tsunami of adrenaline-packed ministry. They've been moving around the northern region of the land. There's been healing. There's been teaching. There's been miracles. They have been impacting lives. It has been nonstop, around-the-clock ministry for Jesus and his disciples. Now, I remember personally what it was like in the early days of my Christian experience, and I can relate to what it must have been for them at least a little bit. It was a very exciting time. There was revelation of God that was happening in my life faster than I could, could, could catch up to it. I was overwhelmed by how much I was learning about who he was. There were relationships that were forming with people that I never thought that I would have relationships with. And there was a deeper level of fellowship and communion with them than I had even with the friends that I had before I had gotten saved. There were opportunities that were coming around constantly for me to serve the Lord and to minister and to be in church and to learn music and to learn the Bible. And it was just an exciting time. There was evangelism and people getting saved and it, it was incredible. It was awesome. But there was a, there's a danger that can happen when there's a tsunami of spiritual activity. And that is that you can get so caught up in the momentum of it that you miss the Messiah and you forget what it's really all about. And the danger of that is that the strength that you're feeling and the joy that you're feeling and the fruit that is coming out of your life is not because of the action of what you're doing, but it's because of the attachment that's been birthed between you and God. And when you have action, but you lose attachment, then that's the beginning of religion without relationship. And just prior to this moment that we're going to read in just a second of Jesus with his disciples, Jesus had told them to beware of the trap of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's what their whole problem was. They had action, but they had lost attachment. Now, 
because of this tsunami of events and the busyness of the ministry, Jesus takes a moment with his disciples and he pulls them aside to draw them in further to himself and to reveal himself in a more rich and real way. And so if you're in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, let's just read this passage and see what Jesus did. It says that when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they're alone. It's just Jesus and the twelve. And he asks them now this question concerning public opinion of himself. And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be unto you. But he, Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense unto me, for you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, or follow me, then let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. In the days before printed newspapers, before, or the, the days before, I should say rather, the bloggers and the ranters and the posters online, in the printed newspaper, when people still read it, there was a section of the paper that was called the op-ed. It stood for opposite editor. And it was the place in the newspaper where people would write in and they would express their opinions, their perspectives, their point of views, their rants concerning the content that the editors of the newspaper chose to include in each edition. It was the opposite ed or the op-ed. Well, Jesus is with his disciples here. He is giving to them a different form of op-ed. It's not opposite editor, but rather it's opinion education. 
And that's the title of the message. And it really is a priceless lesson that Jesus is going to teach his disciples here. And, and it almost might seem trivial to us, but it really is a huge difference maker in our lives. If we can learn what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in this, it's a multi-layered leaven. Now, le- level, le- lesson. Thank you. So Jesus is taking his disciples on a mini retreat and he is engaging them in a discussion about opinions, specifically public opinion concerning himself. And he leads in this discussion with a question. He asks them, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And I can imagine that they're sitting around in that area. I've actually been there. It's a beautiful spot. There's a little uh, stream that runs through it. There's thousands of little stones and a cliffside that's there. It's just a wonderful place to have a retreat. And I can imagine the disciples sitting there, probably all of them, looking at their phones, scrolling through the content and receiving the feedback of things that they've posted. And Jesus sees it and he just asks them a question. He says, hey guys, read me some of the comments. Read me, tell me, what are some of the people writing in or saying about who I, the Son of Man, am? Now, I don't believe that Jesus needed encouragement. He didn't ask them this because he he needed some affirmation from the public to see if his ministry was actually working. He was doing this intentionally to teach these guys a lesson. But the question is, what does the metric of public opinion say concerning me? Now, that's an interesting question because Jesus is kind of loading it up because really opinion doesn't really matter all that much. But that's what he's asking for. He's saying, what is the public opinion about my ministry and about my person? Now, there's a huge difference, a world of difference between opinion and truth. Okay, because opinion, something that is an opinion is something that is plausible yet it's improvable and it's concerning a subject or an issue and it's based upon a series of facts and viewpoints it's just an opinion now a truth is different than that a truth moves beyond the the plausible and it moves into the realm of provable undisputed facts that are based upon all variables and all viewpoints opinions are right some of the time opinions can be partially right opinions can be totally wrong but truth is always right every time and from every angle and we understand that opinions are things like coke is better than pepsi you can't prove that that's just an opinion other opinions people have that six small meals is better than three squares throughout the course of a day. Of course, now people are saying one meal, just fast all day, eat 2,000 calories at dinner time, and then don't eat again until dinner the following day. Those are all opinions. There's some truth to the benefit of it, but you can't prove it. It's an opinion. People have the opinion that if you hold your cell phone too close to your head, that that's going to give you brain cancer. There's some idea behind it. There's plausibility maybe, but at the end of the day, it's an opinion. People say that some cancers respond to chemo and others respond to keto. It's an opinion. People have opinions all the time. Now, truth on the other hand is always true. The human body needs oxygen to survive. And and of course, toilet paper seems to help too. 
but really, it's, it's, we know that. We understand that's a truth. It's always true. If you starve the brain and the body of oxygen, it dies. Another truth. He that has a happy wife... No, we won't go there. That's probably not a good one. <laughs> but you get the idea. It is human nature for us to crave truth. We want to stand on something. And facts inform decisions, habits, and beliefs. And when we feel like we're standing on something that is true, we feel secure, we feel confident, and we feel safe. But because we have this desire for truth, it's very easy for us to substitute opinions for truth so that we can feel like we're moving in the right direction and we're being productive with our lives. We think to ourselves, if someone is smarter than me, then that means they're better informed, and so I'm going to believe what they say based upon the fact that I have assessed them to be smarter than I am. If Albert Einstein believes it, he's smarter than I am, it must be true, and so we stand on it. We see someone who has an MD after their name. They wear a white coat. They're a medical doctor. We assume and assess they're smarter, they're more educated, they're more informed than we are, so if a doctor says it, It must be true. We stand on it. And we give credibility to people all the time that we don't know for certain that they have all the facts. Now, no one has enough facts about anything to ever cross from an an, an arena of opinion to the arena of truth. It's interesting that in 1932, Albert Einstein said that nuclear energy will never be attainable it would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. He, he believed it. And most people would say, well, Einstein believes it. It must be true. That was an opinion. He turned out to be wrong. Dr. Dionysus Lardner in 1830 said that rail travel at high speed is not possible because passengers would be unable to breathe. They would die of asphyxia. He was wrong. Most people probably took him at his word. He's a doctor. Dr. W.C. Halper from the National Cancer Institute in 1954 said if excessive smoking actually plays a role in the production of lung cancer, it seems to be a minor one. He's a doctor. Heh, he must know. Give me another pack of unfiltered camels. Not a real good idea. You know, but we stand upon people's opinions far too often. Interestingly, even when it comes to the fact of man can't live without oxygen, Jesus just said that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. No oxygen. See, nobody really has enough facts about anything to say that something is absolute truth. So Jesus asked this question concerning their opinion. What's their opinion about me? Now the disciples begin to read the comments. They give the answer. And interestingly, no one in the polled crowd got the answer right. Because they give four answers. They said, some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say that you're Jeremiah. And others say that you're one of the prophets. And no doubt, when people looked at Jesus, heard of Jesus, there were things about him and in him that reminded them of these individual characters, and thus they made the association and the link that Jesus must be just like them. They saw in John the Baptist someone who was bold, independent, and anti-establishment. They saw that in Jesus, and so they said, this must be John. 
They saw in Jesus that there was an element of power and mystery. Those were the marks of Elijah. And so they said, this must be Elijah. There, were in, there was in, in Jeremiah this amazing ability to teach through illustrations. No one could illustrate like Jeremiah. He was always grabbing these amazing pictures of the cistern, of the fig tree, of the potter's house, and he was using them to communicate. That's how Jesus communicated. He taught with parables and everyday things, and people associated him with Jeremiah. And of course, Jesus was speaking the words of God. And so, of course, they would associate him with the prophets. Now, all of those opinions were plausible, but not provable. They were observations based upon things that they had seen and heard, but they were incomplete, and thus, they were totally wrong. And if someone were to base their opinion about Jesus based on what other people were saying, they would come to the wrong conclusion concerning him and he wouldn't benefit him in the way that he was intended to or the way that he would. Now, there is a danger for all of us in basing our opinions of anything on the beliefs or positions of other people. If you go along with someone else's opinion and you begin to build your life on it, you're likely to endanger your health, lose time for sure. You might ruin your kids. You might choose a career that's unfit for you. You might destroy values that you previously had in your life. You could form habits, and no doubt you can become a victim of unintended consequences when you follow people's opinions as your truth or your way of life. Now, especially when that opinion concerns the person of Jesus Christ, there can be terrible consequences. If a person's opinion proves to be faulty or false, then you will come to a point where every step you have taken, living according to that truth, proves out to be in vain, and you will end up right back where you started again. Now, if you do this concerning Jesus, the cost is that much higher. If you conclude about Jesus that he was a good person, because someone said to you that Jesus was a good person, if you conclude concerning Jesus that he was gifted and seemed to have the ability to bend science and perform miracles, he was a miracle worker, or if you think that Jesus was a revolutionary or just a significant historical figure, those are all true concerning Jesus, but that's not enough truth about Jesus. It's often good when someone is trying to persuade you according to their opinion to really examine the source. Who is this person that's trying to persuade me or what's going on in their life that I'm giving them the credibility or the level of weight that I am? It's good to do that. You know, think about just the opinions that were given here in the text. Who was it? that was saying that Jesus was like John the Baptist. Well, if you read in Matthew, you realize that it was actually Herod. It was King Herod who said, Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now listen, Herod was a terribly immoral person who was running from God in his life. And he would end up dying being eaten by worms because of his blasphemy against God. Is that the person that you really want to take advice from concerning your belief in Jesus Christ? 
Now, we don't know where the other opinions came from, but we do know that they didn't have all the facts. And we also know that to believe that Jesus is less than who he actually is, is a huge harm to a human life. That's why when someone pushes opinions on us, it's good to watch them for a little while. Find out what they're about. Find out where they're going, because origins often point to destination. The source of something will almost always inform its outcome. And so you just watch someone's life and you see what kind of life their beliefs and practices are producing in them before you jump so quickly on what they're saying. Well, Jesus asked them the other people's opinion, but then he gives a second question. He wants to know their opinion. And so he then says, what's your opinion? He says, who do you guys say that I am? So now, not what do they say, but now you guys have been the closest. You've been with me up close. You've heard me. You've seen me. You've lived with me. What's your opinion concerning who I, the Son of Man, am? I want to pause for a minute and ask you right now to ask yourself that question as though you were sitting with Jesus in that moment. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, for the person who might be listening right now, and you don't know Jesus personally, or you might be skeptical concerning Jesus or unsure, then I would just ask you to question, what is your opinion concerning Jesus and where did it come from? Why do you think of Jesus the way that you do? Is it something that you heard, something that you've seen? And could it possibly be that you're coming to a conclusion with only partial information? But for the believer, those of you that are are watching right now, listening right now, and you do know Jesus, I believe this question is just as valid for you as it is for the unbeliever. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because I believe that there are many Christians that they would never say it out loud. Everyone would give the right answer if they were asked, because we know the right answer. But if you were to really ask yourself in the secret of your own heart, I think there's many of us that would say, well, I kind of think Jesus is John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist, he was kind of unrelatable. He was always pointing out everybody's sins. He was against everything that was mainstream. His eye seemed to go always to the flaw, the thing that wasn't right in the situation. John the Baptist was the kind of guy that would say, don't go to the gym. I'm not going with you to the mall. I don't like your style. If you go to a yoga class, I'm staying at the door. That, that's kind of the way that John was. And, and there are many Christians that kind of feel that that's the way Jesus is. He's just looking at my flaws. He, he, oh, when he walks into a room, it's always what's wrong with me that seems to be the issue. And he, he seems kind of unrelatable. There's a distance in our relationship. Some look at Jesus and they would think, well, Jesus kind of is like Elijah to me. He's anointed. He's powerful. I've seen, I've tasted of his power, but he's kind of untouchable. Elijah didn't have a friend in the world. And I kind of feel like, you know, Jesus is there, but he's not really here. He's around, but I don't really know him intimately. I, I don't feel like I could get close. See, with Elijah, you never knew where he was. When he showed up, it was exciting But you couldn't touch him. He wasn't that close. And there's some people that that's Jesus to them. There are others that look at him as though he were Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He gives the word. Jesus is around when the Bible's open. When the preacher is saying, thus says the Lord, that's when Jesus is around. 
But he's not with me 24-7. There isn't a walk. There isn't an intimacy. I ask you, who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe him to be? And some would say, I believe that he's partial. I believe he has favorites. I believe he's unequal. I think he's apathetic. He's uninvolved. He seems disinterested. He's inconsistent. He seems limited. If a problem is small enough or convenient for him to fix, he'll fix it. But otherwise, he doesn't. He's kind of like the DMV. He's a little like Santa Claus, maybe a little like the IRS, maybe like the unemployment office. Those are things that sometimes we work through and we struggle with. But the real thing, who is Jesus? Really, who is he? He reveals it in the only answer that was given. And it was given by Simon Peter. And he has the courage to answer Jesus' question. Now, we don't know if anyone else tried to answer the question before Peter did or if Peter just spoke up first. But in verse 16, it says that Peter answered and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we'll get to it in a second. Jesus says, you're correct. You're absolutely right. This is who I am. And we must understand this, that if we're asking the question of who is Jesus, the answer is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. Now, Christ means savior. He's a savior. And what that means is that Jesus saved us from a condition and a destiny of damnation that we couldn't save ourselves from. We were, and apart from him, we are in a condition called sin. And that condition separates us from God, and it gives us a ticket, a one-way ticket to hell, an eternal separation from God, where there's torture forever that we can't escape or get away from. That's where any human life apart from Christ, resides. But what Jesus did, because he didn't want us to stay in that position or in that place, he came into this world and he fulfilled the conditions of equal justice in order to save us from that condition and that destiny. Now that meant he did two things. In order to award us with righteousness... He had to produce righteousness. So he had to live a life as a human being without ever sinning or falling short of the perfect standard of God even once. If he's going to give that standing to us, he has to first purchase it himself. So he lived a perfect life. He produced it. But then the second thing that he had to do is that in order to pardon us for our sins, he had to absorb the debt. That means he had to suffer the punishment and the penalty for sins on the cross in order for us to be saved. Now, what that means is that when he forgave our sin debt, it wasn't stimulus like, okay, well, I'm just going to take of the bank account of heaven and just pay for you because I'm rich. But in order to be just, he actually had to make that debt up and he did it. And he did it because of his love. Now, here's what that means, that Jesus is our Savior. It means that he no longer deals with us according to our sins or according to our fallen nature. It means that he's not John the Baptist. It means that he's not looking at us, and every time he sees us, he only sees the flaws or the things that need fixing or the things that need adjustment. That's not his heart towards us. The Bible says that if while we were yet his enemies, 
he died for us, then how much more shall we not live through him? We have the favor of God. He says that he cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and that they don't even come into his mind anymore. That because he saved us, he sees us as completely clean and he looks at us with perfect love and with perfect favor every time. He also deals with us as Lord. In order for him to be the Lord, it means that he's sovereign. It means that he knows everything about us, everything around us, and everything that we're coming from and moving towards. And that means that he is an able counselor and a ready guide who's competent to lead us through this life, which also means that he is our shepherd, which the Bible says that as our savior, he's also our shepherd, which is the one that is constantly among us. He's not distant or afar off like Elijah or one of the others, but he's a God who's near. He's aware. He knows the very hairs on our head. His thoughts towards each of us are more in number than the grains of sand that are on the seashore. He's an ever-present help in our time of trouble, the Bible says. And so Jesus is completely with us all the time, shepherding our life. That's what it means that he's the Savior. But it also says that he's the Son of God. He is not just the Son of Man, but he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as the Son of God, the Bible tells us that he is the exact representation of the Father. He is the living in the flesh demonstration of who God is. John chapter 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So when we look at Jesus, he is revealing to us God. It's no longer an opinion that we follow that we heard from someone else, but we've been given an example in his person and we've been given a record in the Bible. So that we don't have to guess any longer who Jesus is or who God is. Because it's been written very clearly for us on the page. Well, Jesus praises Peter for his accurate answer. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. It's verse 17. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, this is significant and it's huge because it's the third opinion that we see in the text. We saw the opinion of man, the opinion of self. Well, now we have the opinion of God. This is God's opinion. What does God say about the matter, specifically about Jesus himself? And God says, yes, this is the Savior. This is my son. That's who Jesus is. Now, it kind of sounds, doesn't it, like God kind of dropped this revelation bomb on Peter. Peter was just sitting there, and he's kind of like, I don't know who you are, and I'm listening to everything they're saying. Then all of a sudden, he's like, boom. You know, he's like, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And it's like Peter just got this. And and it kind of sounds like that because Jesus says, you know, you've been given a revelation from God and, and there's truth in it. But understand that there were clues along the way that was informing Peter's profession. Remember, John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was proclaiming Jesus to be the Christ. God himself said at Jesus' baptism, he said, this is my son. That, that informed the fact that Jesus was the son of God. John the Baptist, again, had sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus the question, 
Are you he that should come, the Christ, or do we look for another? His disciples would have heard that. Jesus had said just a few days prior to this, he would say that there is one greater than the temple that is here. That would be an implication that he was the Christ, the Messiah. The multitudes, just hours before they were there at Caesarea Philippi, they said, is not this the son of David? Uh, Again, a reference to the fact that he was the Messiah. And Jesus had said just before this, that whosoever does the will of my father in heaven, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. Again, calling himself the son of God. And so Peter put it all together helped by the Holy Spirit, and he gives the right answer in that moment that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter's opinion was praised, and Peter was called blessed because his opinion about Jesus was informed by what God said about Jesus. And that is the thing that you need to hear from me tonight, is that you will be blessed, and you will thrive and prosper when your opinion about Jesus, first of all, and then about everything else in your life comes from what God says. And here's why that matters. Because you can build on that. Because what God says about something is absolute truth about something. It doesn't waver. It won't falter. It won't become irrelevant. And Satan cannot touch it. And I want you to notice what Jesus says to Peter because he had come to this place where his opinions were being informed by God and not by men and not by himself. Jesus said in verse 18 that I say unto you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus gives Peter a new name. His name was Simon Barjona. That's what he calls him uh, there back in verse 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But here he says that you are Peter. Amazing shift because Simon means shifted, meaning that Peter's very name meant that he was always waffling and wavering between what he would stand upon. And when he comes to the place where he says, God's opinion is my opinion, now Jesus says, new name, Peter. Peter means little rock. In other words, there was a stability that was birthed in Peter in the moment where he recognized the truth comes from God. And you can build your life on that. The foundation to build anything lasting on in life starts with Jesus in the right place within his heart. And I want you to see two things that happened to Peter here in this instant. Number one is regeneration. There's an amazing change that happens in Peter. Did you notice that Jesus went from son of man to son of God? Back up in verse 13, when Jesus first posed the question, he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? He called himself the son of man. He was loading that. He knew he was more than the son of man. But Peter says, you're the son of God. That means in Peter's mind, as Jesus went from just being a descendant of Adam to now being the son of God, Peter went from being shifty and unstable to being something steady that life could be built upon. 
There was a shift in Peter's belief that resulted in a shift in Peter's nature. He goes from Simon to Peter. It represents Peter's completion. He is in a right relationship with God. And you and I, we were created to be in a right relationship with God. And when we believe right concerning Jesus, and thus we relate right to God through Jesus, then we are born again. There's a regeneration. There's a new life that comes into us, and we change from the unstable people that we were to now our feet are on something that is firm, and when we begin to build our lives there, we can build something that's lasting. And so regeneration happens to Peter, but then Peter's position changes because man's opinion and His own opinion were now overruled by God's opinion. And let me say it this way. Google and feelings were overruled by God's word. That's where Peter was going to build his life now, on what God said. Because it won't change and you can't defeat it. Here are the two ingredients for stability in a life. And I know that many of you right now probably feel like life just became very unstable and some are grasping for stability. And I'm thankful that it requires two things. You want to be stable, here they are. Number one is regeneration. When the real Jesus has the rightful place in your heart that you were designed by God for him to possess, then that's the beginning of stability in your life, to have the real Jesus in his rightful place in your life. And then second of all, position. And position is that you are living in, in your mind and in your heart, in submission and in trust and in yielding to God and to his ways. Meaning that you're set in a position in your life where your opinion is whatever God says. My opinion on that is what God says about that. That's stable and that's sure. And I'm blessed by that because that means that you can sometimes even get it wrong. But if your heart is in that right place, you're going to stand because the Bible says that he can even call the things that aren't as though they are. We are called to be in line and in submission and trust and yielding to his ways. Now, if you have one of those without the other, you're still unstable. See, you can be born again, you can be regenerated, and Jesus can be in your heart, but you're still looking to everything else for your information and your guidance and your leading, you're going to be unstable. Or You could not have Jesus in your heart, but you say, I'm going to look to the Bible as my counselor, and that's going to be stability for me. It will for a while, but if Jesus isn't living in your heart, it's only a matter of time before you'll blindly wander outside of the path and you'll be sifted away. Regeneration and position. Jesus in my heart, alignment with God's word. And when those two things are in place, there's going to be stability in my life. And thus Jesus gives Peter here the reward of it. He says, Peter, I am going to build on this. When you have regeneration and position, God's going to build a lasting structure in your life. Do you realize that people build their lives on crazy things? Some people build their lives on money. Their whole life is built upon the foundation of money. Make money, earn money, invest money. Others on fame, others on success, others on health, others on their talents. But every one of those foundations are failures. Because ultimately the structure that you built is going to become obsolete. 
We just watched the trial of Harvey Weinstein. He built his whole, his whole life, he built it upon money and fame and talent. That was the structure of his entire life. And while he was in the fruitful years, people looked on and said, that guy's got it figured out. We want to do what he's doing. But if you see what he's become now in his old age, and the man can't walk without help, and he's going to spend the rest of his life behind bars, and he's lived terrible immorality, and he's left a train wreck of broken lives in his wake, it's complete failure. He thinks he won, but he's come to a point now at the end of his life where he realized that he wasted his life because he built it on the wrong foundation. But when you build your life on Jesus Christ and upon his word, then it's built on a connection with God and in a trust in his ways right now. And as life moves, you win. Even if things change. You can lose your money, but that doesn't matter because money isn't your hope. It isn't your security. His promise is your hope and his promise is your security. You can lose your health. Guess what? We're all going to lose our health. But that's okay when my life is built upon Jesus Christ because it wasn't mine to begin with. And my life and my times are in his hand and nothing can happen to me unless he allows it. And when he ordains it, nothing can help me even if it's all the opinion of the wisest men in the world. To build my life upon Jesus is to build a life that lasts. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And when I build my life on anything other than him, I'm wasting time, I'm wasting my life. When I have regeneration in position, I'm insulated from evil. Do you notice what Jesus said at the end of verse 18? He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against what I build. Now, in that context, it was the church. For you and me, we're a part of the church, but as we build our lives upon Jesus Christ, we're insulated from the, the, the victory of Satan over our lives. It's interesting that Jesus calls it the gates of hell, because the gates of hell means the government of hell or the ruling establishment of hell. Do you know what the constitution of hell is? The constitution of hell is to ensnare, enslave, control, use, and systematically destroy people's lives. That's what Satan is out to do. And his strategy to accomplish that is to, first of all, launch an attack upon an individual. And the purpose of that attack that he launches is to try to move you to doubt God or to believe God is against you in some way. And if Satan can get you to believe that that attack means that God's against you, or that God is going to harm you, or God's out to get you, then he's got you right where he wants you, because he's going to get you to doubt God's ways. He's going to get you to take your life back into your own hands, to get counsel from places other than God, and handle things in ways other than how God says to handle things, and that's where the ensnaring, the enslavement, and ultimately the systematic destruction will begin. The only thing that is unavoidable as it pertains to your being influenced by Satan is the attack. You can't stop an attack that Satan might launch against you. But he can't succeed in that attack unless you move. If he can move you from your place in trusting him and knowing him, then he can do more damage. But if you hold on to Jesus in the middle of whatever that is, 
He can't go any further than that. The attack will come and the attack will go, but the gates of hell will not stand. They will fall. That's why Paul the Apostle would say, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because if you stand, Satan will fall. You're insulated from evil. The third thing that will happen when your life is founded upon Jesus is that you will begin to move in the calling that God has for your life. Notice in verse 19 what Jesus says to Peter. He says that I will give to you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus gives Peter a picture of his future as he walks with Jesus. Now, he doesn't say you're going to understand your calling. He basically says you're going to move in your calling. Peter would do these very things. He would preach on Pentecost, and he would open the door for salvation to the Jews. 3,000 people would give their lives to Christ. A little bit later, Peter would open the door for the Gentiles. He would go to the house of a Gentile centurion named Cornelius and lead him to Jesus, and it would open the way for the Gentiles to become saved. I believe Peter probably didn't even know that those two moments were the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying. He was just moving in the will of God for his life, and God was orchestrating Peter's path and causing him to fulfill his perfect will. And that's what God does for us as we walk with him, as we build our lives upon him. He moves us into his purpose. And you know what I believe? I believe that many of us are going to arrive in heaven, and God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he's going to tell us things that we did, that we don't even remember doing, that we didn't think were very significant, but we'll come to find out that they were the very reason why God had us in places where he had us all along. God had a specific purpose for Peter, and Peter was now in the place where that could happen. And God has a specific purpose for you. And to be in the place where it can happen is to have Jesus in his right place in your heart and to have your feet in the right place in his path. Now, opinions go further than just concerning the person of Jesus. Because something's about to happen now where Peter is going to get a little bit too sure of himself and he thinks that God cares about his opinion about something. Watch this. It says in verse 21, it says that from that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be unto you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you're an offense unto me. For you savor or hold on not to the things that be of God, but to those things that be of men. Listen, our opinions, not just about Jesus, but about other things, matter as well. And here Peter offers his opinion to Jesus about how he thinks things should go on. And he learns very quickly that God is not interested in your opinion. He doesn't want your opinion. He doesn't need your opinion. He is very competent to know exactly what he wants to do. And isn't it interesting how Peter went from Pope to Satan in one sentence? I mean, he was praised, he was elevated, and then he was put severely in his place. And here's why. Because Jesus was preaching the cross and Peter was thinking the crown. Now Satan, and that's why Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan promises a crown, but he doesn't tell you that a crown without a cross will crush you. 
Jesus preaches the cross because the cross prepares us for a crown and because there is no crown without a cross. That's why Jesus would not bow the knee to Satan when Satan offered him the treasure of the world before it was his time. The cross is an essential ingredient in following God. And Jesus concludes it by saying, you do not savor the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. It's interesting to realize that oftentimes the opinions of men are inspired by hell. Be careful when you follow men's opinions really about anything. You say, what kind of life or what does life like this look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus in this way? To build my life upon him? To be insulated from evil, from hell? And to be moving in the calling that he has for my life? What does it look like? Well, Jesus answers the question in verse 24. It says that Jesus said to his disciples, If any man, that's all of us, will come after me, then let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you know what it means to live for Jesus and to walk in his ways and to be positioned and surrendered to his opinion for all things in my life? It means really that I live with an open hand. It means that I'm living in absolute trust that I am so surrendered to God's lordship, love, and will for my life that even should it mean that I die on a cross like Jesus did, that I'm, I'm accepting that now. I understand that if that's God's perfect will, then that's God's best will for my life. It means to live with an open hand, to live in surrender and trust. It means that I'm living my life in such a way that at any time God can put something into my hand and God can take something out of my hand and I am okay with it no matter what it is. I'm in submission knowing that what he chooses is best. It's like Job, right? Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He lived with an open hand. And God will put things in our hand for a season. He'll give us health and youth and vitality. And that's ours when we have it. But when it's time for God to remove it in his sovereign will, whether it be in the cycle of life or whether it be something that happens otherwise, to be surrendered to him and take up my cross means that I'm okay with what he chooses because I trust him even if I don't understand. He might put a particular job or a level of income or some other thing that I really enjoy in my life for a season. But I'm never to close my hand and say, well, this is now the purpose of my life and this is the thing that's going to satisfy. As soon as you do that, you begin to lose your life and you begin to erode your soul. We're to live with an open hand and to live in complete trust with him. Because what really matters is him in our lives. He's the treasure not that. So in conclusion, there is one way, there's one way to build a life that will last and without regret. And here's what it is. It's to make God's opinion your opinion. First of all, about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the son of God, that's regeneration. And then about everything else that God says in his word, that I'm putting my trust in him and in his ways, come what may of it, that's position. We all, in this season right now, what we're going through in our world, we love the promises that we find in Psalm 91. 
That's the one we've all been reading lately about how we will not be harmed by the evil diseases that, uh, that lurk through the night. And we claim the promises of Psalm 91. But do you realize that the promises of Psalm 91 are conditional promises? Meaning that they're not just the blank check that God just is giving out to whoever claims the promise. They're conditional. There's a condition. And the condition's given in verses 1 and 2. It says this. It says, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. That's the person that can expect the promises of the following verses to be fulfilled in their life. The person who says, you are my God. I have made a covenant with you. I'm in a right relationship with you. And the person who says, my position, my feet are standing in your fortress. That's where my life is going to be lived. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to surrender to your will. Those people will experience the stability of life even in an unstable world. So what's the response to this as we consider what Jesus has said here and the truth of it in the context of our own lives? Well, to you who might be listening that don't know Jesus Christ personally, for you the response is to open up your heart to Jesus. And I want to lead you right now, if you're willing to open up your heart and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to come in my life. I want to lead you in a prayer right now over the airwaves. God doesn't care about the distance that's between us physically. He hears your words, your heart, and your thoughts right now. And if you'll open up your heart to Jesus and pray this prayer to ask him to come inside, Jesus will forgive you of your sins. He'll seal you with his spirit. He'll set you upon the rock of his salvation. He'll become your savior, and you'll have taken the first step to knowing God and knowing stability, and ultimately you're headed towards heaven. So if you're in that place right now where you want to know Jesus personally, would you please pray this prayer with me right now? Lord Jesus, I open my heart to you, and I ask you to come inside. I believe that you're God. I believe that you came to save me and that you died in my place. Please forgive me of my sins. Please restore me into a right relationship with God. I give you all that I am. I want to live for you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that you died and that you rose again for me. And I receive your gift of salvation. Please hear my prayer. I ask you to save me. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer right now and you asked Jesus, would you please let us know? Just put a, put a little comment. Say, I prayed the prayer. We just want to rejoice with you. We want to encourage you. We want to build you up. Please, if you do know Jesus, but right now you find that your refuge is in something else, you find yourself running to Google or running to Walgreens or running to a mask or a bottle of Purell, whatever it might be, if you find right now that your refuge is in anything other than God, please know that your foundation and your trust must be in Him. That's the only place that you're secure, but there you are secure. This is the time right now to make the Lord your refuge. 
We're going to pray. We're going to close. The worship team is going to lead us in a song. The song is the response. It's a prayer. We're asking God to build our lives upon the rock of his son and upon the rock of his words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for, uh, for your truth. And we ask you, Lord, that you would take the things that you've spoken, the things that we've heard, and you'd help us to walk in your ways. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Know that he's with you, he's for you, he's not going to leave you. And let us know that you are here. We're praying for you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.